You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 108 for Monday the 26th of March 2018. My guest today is Martha Carr, a best-selling author from Austin, Texas, who spends most of her time dreaming of elves, witches, wizards and other magical worlds. Her work has been published in internationally respected publications such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune and Newsweek. She had a publishing career prior to teaming up with Michael Andelay of 20 Books to 50k fame, but since they started collaborating together, Martha has released a steady flow of teen and young adult and urban fantasy bestsellers. When we chatted for the podcast, I started by asking Martha what her early career in newspapers and magazines involved. My first training was in newspapers, and I did that because I knew I wanted to write novels, and I and newspapers were supposed to be my backup because they had been around since Ben Franklin, so surely newspapers weren't going anywhere. <laughs> Little did we know at the yes. time. Yes, <laughs> and I grew up in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area, so to me, the Washington Post was a hometown newspaper. And uh, so when I started sending them pieces, I wasn't as intimidated as I probably should have been uh, because I had read the newspaper my whole life. And I got in pretty easily and became a stringer for them. And they are some of the best editors to this day that I've ever met. So I got a lot of really great training on how to write a really good sentence as well as how to be a really good journalist. So did you train actually as a journalist or did you learn that on the job? I learned it on the job. I was so when I was 30 years old, I was getting a divorce. I had an infant son and I had been a stockbroker, successful stockbroker and was miserable. And so I figured it was time for reinvention. And I uh, called up the local, the local, local newspaper in a small town. And because I'd been a stockbroker, I thought in my brain that that would make me a good business writer. And I went to see the editor and I remember they were all looking at me like I was a little crazy. I also had the baby with me in a stroller because it was a single parent. And <laughs> he gave me a list of books to read. And I found out later he thought I would go away and never come back. But I was on fire. I mean, 30 years old, I was finally doing what I wanted. So I went and read all the books, took notes. And I called him and came back carrying the books with all these um, notes in them, still with the baby in a stroller. And um, I still remember to this day the shocked look on his face. And because of my enthusiasm and follow through, they all in the business section kind of adopted me and uh, taught me how to write. So had you done, or uh, at that stage, aspired to do any kind of sustained writing at all? No. Um, I had just had a dream that I kept putting aside because everybody thought it was a dumb idea. But I had this cousin, uh, Virginia Stabney, who had won a Pulitzer for um, his newspaper work 
in the 60s. And he was kind of the patriarch of the family. And he took off the shelf one of his books, wrote in it to a successful uh, writer before I'd written a thing and signed it and gave it to me. And it was kind of like the Willy Wonka golden ticket because it made the rest of my family stop talking. Now, you mentioned the Washington Post, and you said you treated it like it was just like a local newspaper. But come on, Marcus, right. the Washington Post. I mean, well, we, it's respected in the UK. We, we love it over here. It's a brilliant newspaper. And I'm really grateful that I didn't have the perspective to understand what it was, because I, I, I think I would have been far more intimidated. But I just didn't. I'd grown up reading it forever and so I and and one of the things about the Washington Post at least in my day I don't know now it's got a new owner Jeff Bezos um, but in those days they they saw themselves as a local paper as well and so when you wrote for them you had to find a local link or they weren't interested so I just threw it out there and they kept saying yes and then they started assigning me things. I'm not sure stringers exist anymore, but it's where you're not on staff but you get regular assignments. Right. I'm pleased you qualified that because I don't think that's really a phrase we use in the UK. I hear it mainly in um American dramas, I think, stringer. So thank you for clarifying that. Um how did you find writing as a journalist? I'm from a journalistic background and I remember when I became a journalist for radio I did it for, I had to relearn everything I'd ever learned before. Uh, is that how you found it? I found it to be super useful because, uh, you know, when you write for a newspaper as opposed to the Internet, there is a very limited amount of space. They need a certain number of inches, and that's all they need, and they're not going to need any more. But it still has to contain all the necessary information. So I learned how to be direct, how to put the point near the top, how to come up with a good ending, uh, how to be accurate, how to not drone on about anything. I can always, when I'm looking at a novel, I can always tell, I think, when a journalist, uh, the person used to be a journalist or is a journalist, because of how clean it is. They don't use five words when one will do, and I really appreciate it. Yes, it's an interesting point. I spoke to a a journalist friend of mine who said that she went to a writing class, uh, a beginner's writing class, and the tutor said, you don't need to be here. Your writing is really sharp and precise already you're not having to relearn that you're ready to go to the next class because you've been through this already right. and i apologize for lois lane the dog in the background <laughs> who is also deaf so unless i can get her attention she's just going to do what she's going to do that's all right well, we'll, well that's fine we've, we've we've had all sorts of animals on the show before so it's <laughs> absolutely fine we're, we're always delighted to have a dog on the show so, uh, so, so being a, yeah, being a journalist, I think, is a great uh, run, uh, place to start if you want to write. And also, there's an old saying that the New York Times was where you went to uh, learn how to, to uh, write who, when, what, why, where, how. And the Washington Post is where you went to learn how to write prose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, with, with your journalism, then, how did that then move into, because I think you wrote, you've been a writer before this this second amazing writing career that you've had. I'm just interested to hear how we got from from being a stringer on the Washington Post, how you progressed through the writing channels. So my original goal was to be a novelist. And like I said, I thought newspapers would be the backup. And uh, so I was taking workshops and I formed my own writer's group. I was really good at planning. I started a, a 
reading group um, for the city of Richmond uh, for writers to come and read from their works. And I wrote a thriller called Wired, which was published back in 1993, I think, and did wow. really well. Wow. And uh, so to in, in my mind, the goal was always to be writing novels and newspapers just kind of took over. And eventually I became a syndicated columnist uh, on politics. Now that's interesting. You got into politics and so that, so were you doing sort of the cut and thrust of local politics or national politics at that stage? National politics. It was a national, nationally syndicated column. And, you know, I grew up in the DC area. So politics was the business of the town. So it was second nature to me. And for me, politics, if you write thrillers, politics is just thrillers. And I always found it fascinating to watch all of the deals being made. And you could always tell from what somebody wasn't saying on the national news as to what deal they were probably working on and what pressure they were trying to apply or what deal they were probably losing. And so, yeah. And also I was always trying to write the columns from the perspective of how we could always work together. And um, that's not, as you probably have noticed from our politics, uh, that's not always an easy thing, but I always wanted to keep, I knew that the column ran in mostly small towns all over America. And so it was very important to me to keep talking about how we could still come together. Who, who was your president? I'm just trying to get a sense of time here. Obama. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that was a very exciting time, wasn't it, to be writing? It was also because I lived in New York City. And on the first election night, I lived in the Bronx. And uh, everybody came outside and was standing on the Grand Concourse in the grass in the middle. And it was very quiet, but excitement. I mean, people were so excited. And they called that election really early. And the word spread rapidly, like, miles of people standing outside and the word spread quickly and everyone quietly moved inside. And then you heard this great cheer come up and everybody poured back outside and the celebration went on all night and not a thing was broken. Nothing was set on fire. There was no trouble. It was just joy. And also um, reading through your, your sort of uh, bio as well. uh, It says that you've written for New York times, USA today, wall street journal, uh, Chicago Tribune, uh, Newsweek. I mean, these are all names that we know extremely well and respect in the UK as well. That's it's quite a career as a journalist. Right. And uh, it was one of those things, like I said, I was set out to write books, but, but there were apparently other plans in the works. Um, and I ended up writing a lot of pieces that uh, I think really did kind of make a difference. So, if, you know, looking back, it was a great, th- I wrote a piece once on the Rwanda genocide because a woman I knew had started an orphanage there and barely escaped the genocide. And so I went, so I wrote about that and I was asked to write a book on U.S. orphanages and ended up spending two years living on different U.S. orphanages. And it was very life-changing and a wonderful book to write. And so even though my goal was to write book, write novels, uh, I'm really, really, really happy that it, everything turned out the way it did because it changed who I am. And I think I made a difference um, in some small way. Now, when, we, when I go to your Amazon author page and I scroll through the lines and lines and lines of books right. <laughs> that you've written, mm-hmm. I, I eventually get to uh, Wired. 
and I get to right. um, the the sort of the, the thrillers, the the Wallace Jones series uh, that you were writing. So so could, could we get? I always like to get the chronology right about which came, you know, what came when and in what order. So was Wired the first one, or, or what? Did you Wired start? was the very first, yeah. very first book, and then uh, a novel called uh, The Sitting Sisters which was traditionally published. So I started in traditional world with agents and that sort of thing. And then a nonfiction, a place to call home about U S orphanages, best kept secret of something we're doing really well. No one knows. And uh, then the Wallace Jones series. And uh, by the way, Michael and I are putting out the Wallace Jones series in audible shortly. And we're going to put it out as one 40 hour package. Wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, but, but hang on. These, were these though, were traditionally published, were they? Um, up until Wallace Jones, they were traditionally published. Wallace Jones was when I stepped out and started doing it myself. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. So this must have been a lot earlier in, in kind of self-publishing days then. Uh, the first one it was. Hmm. And I wish I'd been smart enough to join KU, Kindle Unlimited, when it first started, but I wasn't. And it was partially because... I still had somewhat of a traditional mindset and didn't want to relinquish control to Amazon. I totally missed the point. It wasn't relinquishing anything, but you know, things happen the way they're supposed to when they're supposed to. And what had been your experience of being traditionally published up to that point? I'm, I'm interested in what made you decide to go self-published really, I guess. Well, so in traditional land, you wait a long time for every decision. If uh, So you wait to find an agent, then you find a great, and I had a really good agent and a great relationship, but then they send the, the manuscript out to people and then you wait till the committee meets and you, it, there's so much time that goes by. And then if they do say, yes, we want this, it's probably going to be the spring or the fall when it comes out. So you may have another a hurdle of time that goes by and it just was seemed like a lot of anxious waiting and then on top of that you get um 15 percent and the bookstores can return the books and there's there's really not a lot of interaction with the public unless you set it up which i did but I mean, if I can keep all the money and I can decide when to publish and I can do it faster, why am I going through traditional? I don't need, my ego doesn't need me to have somebody else, a gatekeeper say, sure, you're good. I mean, the readers let you know. So with the Wallace Jones series then, this, this is what I was alluding to before. I, I guess that you, so you've got all the rights. That's what I was. That's why I was asking. I do. Yeah, which is great, of course, because you own the assets. I do. And the one, to, so um, when Michael Anderley was starting LMBPN, I think I was the first person he came to and said, do you want to do the audibles together? And I said, sure. And then the wonderful um, woman who's doing the audio, she got the opportunity to be a magician's assistant in the circus last summer. Oh. So. <laughs> Who can tell her no to that? So we ended up having to wait to finish the series until she got back. And we're about to. <laughs> uh, uh, we're, and yeah. And I'm a big giant believer in everything happens when it's supposed to. And you just, so if you can be open to that and let things happen the way they're supposed to, good things happen. So 
while we were waiting, Michael got this idea. He said, why don't we release the whole thing as one 40-hour long? Because the Wallace Jones series is one story in, um, told through six books. Yeah. And the thriller trope, I now know, is once uh, you tell a complete story per book. And uh, you know what happens when you break the tropes. People don't like it. Yeah. Well, let, well let's, let's talk about that then, because I, I'm guessing that, I mean, obviously you had experience traditionally, so you, you, you knew what you were doing, you knew about the process. So when you self-published these then, um, you said you got the tropes wrong, which is fine. How, how did they go? Because you, you, didn't, you weren't part of the 20 books thing at that stage. You nope, were, I wasn't yet. Nope. You, you weren't unknown either. You, you, you've got a, a career behind you as well. So how, how, how are your first experiences of self-publishing? So um, uh, they were great from a technical standpoint. I did know what I was doing technically, but I did not get it right on the covers. I did not get it right on the title. I called the first book The List, and now I look back and laugh at that all the time thinking, The List of what? But it seemed very like conspiracy to me, but that's ridiculous. And that is one of the issues with being um, self-published if you're not in 20 books is that you, you kind of are in a a cave all by yourself and there's no one to say, uh, I don't know that that's going to work. But, you know, if you can find your way to 20 books on Facebook, there's a whole crew. You can say, what do you think of this name? And then you get a lot of people saying, I don't know what that means. Is it nonfiction? I can't tell. And then you know to change it. So I was missing a, uh, I was in a vacuum of people. So I couldn't see that I was breaking tropes and that I was, that I had a good story but I was breaking too many other things. Live and learn. So were, were they not successful then? Or was it just a... Well, we like to call it my hamburger money, Michael. <laughs> I make enough, and he always is asking me, um, is it, is it um, oh, he always picks out burger places and asks me, is it McDonald's or is it going to be a better burger place this month? Hmm. So, right. so, but, you know, it's a great learning experience. I love the story. People who find it really like it. It's um, and so we're going to do something cool with the audible so that people can find it and people really, it gets great reviews. It's just not many people find it. And, and here's the thing about that. So I could have quit right then and there and said, cause it's half a million words. And I could have said, forget it. This isn't working. I give up, but it's just data. That's all it is. And so then what happened next was, and, and by the way, I was being interviewed by, Stephen Campbell on his podcast during Wallace Jones. And so I was up front and said, it's, you know, it's not doing what we hoped. And uh, instead of saying it must be me, and maybe that's where I was lucky that I'd been, I'd been writing long enough to know I knew how to write. Instead, it was more a question of what went wrong and what can I do differently? And that's when Michael said, Hey, I'm interested in starting this new universe. It's in urban fantasy. You want to try it. And I've been a nerd kid from the get-go. I was into Star uh, Star Trek, the original TV series, and DC Comics, big fan. And I used to invent elaborate games that my little brother was kind enough to play with me. (laughs) So the idea of creating a new universe with elves and witches and magic and and what turned out to be a swearing troll was like catnip. So I was in. So then, so by the time we started that universe, I'd been in 20 books long enough and I was willing to listen to Michael and not do the, but let's try it my way because he's doing it well. Why not just learn from him? And it's been a completely different experience. 
Now, hang on, though, because you own these books, you've got the rights. You're not you're not sort of locked in. You said that the writing was good. What what I'm interested in is why you haven't got new titles and new covers on that and maybe well, even slightly repackage them because they're an asset and you've just got to mix it up a little bit, shake it up, haven't you? Well, so I changed the titles. It's now the first book is now called The List Conspiracy, so it's a little clearer what we're doing here. And I changed the covers, but I broke a trope that's too hard to undo, which is I it's not in in thriller land, they want the the book to be complete. So you might use the same characters again in the book, but the story is complete in that in each book. It's like an episode of TV that completely wraps up or a movie that completely wraps up. And so the next book might have the same characters, but it's a new story. And I didn't do that. Or couldn't you just publish it as a great big book like you're doing the audio, though? Because if you read them back to back or, well, or you know, put well, them as trilogies or something. I did. I packaged them as two. Um, and we're thinking of packaging it as one giant book and seeing what happens. We are thinking about doing that. But we're definitely doing the Audible that way. And we may package the book as one giant book. And with a new cover, we're actually going to do even better on the cover because I've learned even a little more. But there was also part of me that said, I've got this opportunity in urban fantasy, so I'm going to move forward. But you're right. Um, there comes a time, too, when you can look back and say, I have this asset. Uh, what can I do here? So, yeah, we're going, to put, we're going to do 40 hours of great listening and one giant book. Brilliant. Now, I, I want to let's get to the, the, the Michael Andalay meeting then, because um, I was trying to I was looking on YouTube tonight because I remember looking at a, a I say an old Michael Andalay video, but it was on YouTube. And, and it was how I found him doing the rounds. And I was trying to work out because I met you at 20 Books London. I was trying to work out whether that was the event where you went up to him and said. Um, it probably is. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I'm in the audience. Yeah. And it's in Austin. Uh, I had seen uh, the invite that said that here's this guy. He's been writing since November. This was in July. And he's already making 30000 a month from fiction. And that wasn't supposed to be possible. And so I wanted to go see if he was legit. Or at least maybe I could get a couple of marketing ideas from him. And I was mentoring a teenager in high school. She'd already written three space operas. So I took her along with me. And about a third of the way through, I realized he was, not only was he legit, but that he was doing something so different that it was possible to make that much that fast and it was repeatable. And there was 90 authors in the room. And at the end, he said, I'll stay as long as anyone has a question. Well, I thought for sure he'd be rushed. So I said, well, we better go because I had this teenager with me that I needed to get back. But at the door, I, first of all, walking out, I could hear people as they're leaving saying, that can't be true. And um, things like, um, well, uh, what I write, I don't know that it's mass. They, they all had, they all, nobody believed him really. And so I turned around to look and there were only two people up there asking questions. So I said to the young lady, I'll be right back and waited my turn. And he gave me his number an email. And so out of the three people who asked him a question, I was the only one who also stayed in touch. And were you the only one who followed up from the yes. email? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and what was that conversation that you had with Michael? I probably had a bazillion questions and, and uh, 20 books, the Facebook group uh, was just hitting 500 people. I think it's at 17,000 now. 
So everything was new and small, and I just asked uh, Scott Paul and Craig Martell and Michael um, all the questions, and I was focused on, I hadn't finished Wallace Jones yet, so I was focused on that, and that's what got me to change the covers and the titles the first time. Mm. But, you know, you break the tro- you break a single really big trope, and you will pay for it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's come over loud and clear. Actually, I think uh, this because I, I know Michael's really big on the tropes, isn't he? And writing to the tropes and uh, basically giving people what they want, um, which is all tropes are really, I guess. So, what business is out there says, you know, I don't think I'm going to give the people what they want. I mean, the car business, the um, snack food industry. I mean, uh, home builders. Who in their right mind says, you know, I don't think that the the buyer matters. How then did you? start to write for or with Michael for the first time? Where, where, where did that conversation come from? So um, I mentioned to him that the books weren't, well, he knew because it was on the podcast that the books weren't doing what I hoped and I wasn't sure what to do next. And so uh, he was thinking about starting this new universe. And uh, I had mentioned that I've ghostwritten books before too. And he was looking for someone who could match his style. And so he thought of me and I'm really super grateful. And I had I made a decision that I was just going to say yes to whatever he wanted to do and not put my two cents worth in because I felt like I would learn far more that way and I'm just going to go along for the ride and see what happens. So we worked out this he uh, he had this really brilliant backstory in mind of where there are these two worlds, Earth and another world which I ended up naming Orisaren and every 25,800 years these gates open between the two worlds and the magic from Orisaren pours into earth and um, the gates are going to start to open soon. And uh, the pyramids were really built a long further ago than what everybody thinks. And it was when the magic was here before. And we base a lot of this on actual history too. And then we came up with um, a murder plot where they would need to ask this Austin female homicide detective for help, the people from Orisaren, to solve it. So, Michael, I don't know if he intentionally meant to do it, but he threw a thriller element in there. And uh, that was right up my alley. And we were off and running. And then he said, we need a sidekick. And at first he said a dragon. And then he said, no, a troll. And... So I threw in the troll, and they're swearing in the book. If swearing really bothers you, it's not for you, but it's funny. And so we named, can I say the name of the troll? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. Okay, the name of the troll is Yumfuck Tiberius Troll. And it's because he was lear- um, they believed he was learning English, so he was saying yum, and then he was saying fuck, and Michael thought it was funny and put them together. And, and Yeah, YTT for short, I think, isn't it? YTT yeah. for short. Yeah. Right. And so we had a comic element. We have these uh, regulars um, that the main character, uh, Lyra Barons, meets with all the time. And we have a story. We have this really great action packed storyline that takes place in Austin that keeps evolving. And I really wanted two things. Uh, I wanted to, people to, she always looks for the solution. She does not whine. She does not stare at the problem. She believes there's a solution. So she always heads straight for it. And she um, is very loyal to those she cares about. She will, she'll run into the fire, not away from it. And it's been really rewarding because um, 
lots of the reviews say, I like the way these books make me feel. And that's really rewarding. Now, you, you said towards the beginning of the interview that you've always loved elves, witches, you know, wizards and all the magical stuff. Right. And, and so I'm wondering then, why do you go into thrillers then in the, in the first place? Because thrillers are quite I a know. different beast, aren't they, really? They are a different beast, and I'm not sure why I did. Uh, and, but I'm glad that things work out the way they're supposed to. And at the right moment, uh, someone came along and said, hey, you want to do magic? It's, it, I don't know why I didn't. But now it seems like this is where I should have been all along. It's really kind of interesting. Things work, you know, things work out the way they're supposed to. I've had a very interesting career written about U.S. orphanages, written politics, written about the uh, U.S. highway system, and um, and then thrillers, and now elves and witches and swearing trolls. It, it swearing trolls. It wasn't you, was it? Um, we were messing around on another podcast I do the other night with this swearing website. That wasn't you who gave us that, was it? From a hundred books. Uh, no, that was that might have been Michael. Um, was it Michael? Yeah, it was a swearing yeah. website. Yeah, I know. It's very I've funny. Heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, uh, we we were doing something with it on a podcast the other night, and it comes up with some classics. It's just that the troll's name sounds exactly like it might have come from that website. That's all. Oh yeah, as and to be funny, well for fun, Michael and I did the twelve days of Christmas, but it's the twelve days of Yumfuck, and it's the troll, the woman who does the audible um, for the Lyric Chronicles, did the twelve days of Yumfuck, and it's it's um hilarious it's in the Mar- it's in the martha carf um on facebook the fan group if you want to go and dig it up and the troll has taken over my newsletter and um they're swearing in the newsletter because i felt that would help people who don't care for that to leave and people who love the troll get a lot of uh the troll and a lot of free things it's fun it's interesting that you've gone for the swearing because, you know, often if you if you get negative reviews, people are saying it's blasphemy, it's swearing, it's too much uh, sexual content or something like that. But you sound like you're very definitely saying, well, look, this is what we do. If you don't like it, you need to read something else. Is that is that fair to say? Pretty much. And also the swearing that the troll does is very limited. It's never used as a weapon and it does. it's not disparaging to anyone. So... And really, it's some of the funniest parts. I mean, there was a a gentleman who wrote, I was told by my doctor, no strenuous exercise. And after I read this part, I had an angina attack because from laughing. (laughs) Well, I suppose there's worse ways, aren't they, to to, to experience that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, um, collaboration is something I've no experience of. And it always fascinates me because I, I, I... always imagine it as um, two people sort of tussling and, and, and not agreeing. And when, when I saw you speak at um, 20 Books in London, um, I've never heard collaboration sound more attractive, to be honest with you, um, the, the way that you express it and you articulated it. So can we, can we delve into that process sure. a little bit, if that's okay? Sure. Now, so, so working with somebody, when it, it's your name and Michael's name that goes on the book. So ha, do you do all the writing effectively, but he's um, like, uh, you know, coming up with the ideas, things like that? So we work out the ideas together, uh, and then I do the writing. And it's like any good, um, like any author will tell you, some of the ideas pop up in the middle of the writing. But yeah, he's he's very good at he's very good at coming up with the finer points that really help steer it, or about asking the right questions so that um, everything is logical and it all fits together, and uh, it satisfies what the particular audience that we write for would want to see 
And he comes up with some really good, fun things to put in there, too. And then it's fun for him that there's always a couple of things that he doesn't know about. So when he reads it, um, he gets some joy out of it, too. But if you're going to collaborate, uh, it's really make a decision that you don't need to be right. And if you can do that, and if you can believe that it's just data and you'll make adjustments, it's going to go a lot smoother because you're more willing to try something. If you're having to say what if, you're asking magical questions because uh, that can't be answered. I don't have a crystal ball. So I'm willing to, I'm willing to try. And Michael and I adjust things all the time. And uh, we just have fun. I've always, I'm always telling him we should record our conversations because they're very funny and very ridiculous. And I think they would be entertaining. And so neither one of us is taking it deadly serious. Our egos are not in it. Uh, neither one of us needs to prove that we know, um, you know, that we're the best, we're the greatest, not at all. We really are hoping that we're writing something that the fans will really like, that this will bring some joy into their life, and um, that they have a good time with us as much as we're having with them. And that's about it. So it makes collaboration a lot easier. Is there any um, formulaic element to the, the way that you write? So, for instance, do you have an idea of how long you want the book to be, the number of chapters, the chapter length? Is there any, any formula, any template that you work to? The, um, the, you know, I also, I don't know if everyone realizes this, but I also work a corporate job. Um, so due to time, I write, the books are about 60,000 words long, which is a good length anyway. And... So I also have this, I, I want to make sure that the entire story is told so people don't feel like it cut off suddenly. And so that's just, no matter what you're doing, it, you really need to keep that in mind. Um, I don't want to write uh, an encyclopedia. So I do have to keep an idea of plot, how it's moving so that it feels exciting, but you don't feel like you're dropped suddenly. And, and that there's enough action in there and there's enough story wrap up. I mean, so we write with uh, 12 books in mind, but broken into arcs, three arcs of four books each. And each four book arc contains an entire kind of story in a way so that if a series wasn't doing well, we could end after the four and readers who did like it didn't feel like they got left. And so, um, I, yeah, there's I, there is a template of sorts, but it's it makes sense because um, there, this is also you just can't you can't just write out into the void and hope people will follow you. They they really have to feel like there was a point. I remember you mentioning at uh, Twenty Books in London that you still had the corporate job, and that that had slipped my mind actually. So I just need to talk to you about that because sure. a lot of people will um, cite life by which I mean jobs and family, as the reason that they don't write. But you've already given us an example of uh, t- turning up with a, a child in a buggy, right. <laughs> but also doing this phenomenal output that you have you know, alongside Michael, alongside a, a, a corporate job. So what then is your attitude to, to time management when people say there's not enough hours in the day? Well, I mean, I think it's okay if people feel that it's not enough hours in the day because it's a subjective answer and it's not a wrong answer. So if if this would crowd out parts of your life to the point where you, it, you would not be happy, that's a fair answer because people who do have – lots of people who, who have this output have a job and family, 
and they're writing on the train or they're writing early in the morning like I do. And I write during my lunch hour and then after work and on the weekends. And it's a choice you make. But it's okay if you don't want to make that choice. Uh, it's not, there's nothing wrong with you. You aren't like less special than those of us who are making it. It's just not what you want to do right now. But it is doable if you want to do it. It is doable. And I'm not the fastest writer out there. I hear what others out people's outputs are and I think how do you humanly do that and so it's if I can do it I think you know my part my whole part in 20 books to 50k is to quit, keep being the example of if I can do it you can do it <laughs> well it's very it's very impressive that you do well how, how many words uh, you roughly do you get out during a week if you're writing in those pockets of time you're not one of these five o'clock risers are you I sometimes am. Sometimes it depends on like if I suddenly realize the book's coming out and I have the X amount left. I'm constantly calculating based on the calendar, like how are you doing? And I, um, but generally three thousand a day and five thousand a day on the weekends. And, and so I, it's a Sunday today, for instance. You write today, right? Correct. And uh, I can do five thousand on a weekend day without feeling like that was the whole day, and can still do some other things. And I enjoy it. And I, and I waited a long time for a successful series and to have this much fun with fans. So, you know, I'm going to keep doing it um, because I'm having fun. And my hope is that maybe someday this will replace the day job. Being in the States, health insurance is a big consideration. But maybe someday this I can work all the pieces out and this will be all I do. But I'm having a really good time. If you... If you do come to Facebook and join the fan group, you'll find out why. Because uh, I look at the, I think about 80% of the people in that fan group constantly post, which is unheard of. And we're having a really good time. <laughs> I'm wondering if, um, with all the writing that you do, um, do you ever find that your rate of writing uh, exceeds the flow of the ideas? Or, or is this how you get around it with the planning? I get around it with the planning, but in every book, some idea occurs to me that I run with, and I look back and think, where did that come from? Hmm. And adore it. And I, you know, it makes me wonder if, if, um, if maybe guardian angels do exist and they're just helping. And, uh, or maybe it's all those years of, you know, just loving the genre. But, um, you know, that's a thought. Really, when people were laughing super hard at all the parts uh, in the first two or three books, I thought, hoping keep this up. And But we're at book seven, and they're still laughing, so I let it go. <laughs> now, what does it feel like I, um, when, uh, after you've had uh, the, the mediocre sales that you've experienced previously, the, 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 the burger right. level, the burger the, level? Yes, the burger how, level. <laughs> describe to me that feeling when you suddenly feel like what you're doing is flying. It's really odd. It's, 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 um, it's like feeling lightheaded and the books get an orange tag a lot of the time, which means it's a, a number one in this category on Amazon. And it's really odd. I think it's something, at least for me, it's something I'm growing into. Um, I, I, yeah, it's something I'm growing into that I am a financial success and in doing this and it's fun. It's a lot of fun to be doing something that pay that's that's uh, actually working and you know um 
it means also that there are a lot of fans who like it. And so I've had a lot of critical success in my career where the gatekeepers loved it, but not where the bands in great numbers loved it. Wired was well-received, but that was a long time ago. It's just really, it's supernatural almost to go from one to the other so quickly and for it to be sustaining and so much fun, frankly. I'd like to dig into that a little bit more because one of my sort of pain points as a writer at the moment is that you get good reviews, but, but I, when I see the passion that, that uh, you know, Craig's talking about, Michael's talking about, you're talking about this passion from fans and, and you alluded to it there with your initial books that they get good reviews. People like them. Right. There isn't that wonderful sort of passion engagement right. with them. They can sort of feels like almost they can take it or leave it. Now, how, yes. how do we jump from, from one to the other? What's the difference? What change for you? I st- I paid attention to the tropes and I also uh, I think with Wallace Jones well the first couple of books in Wallace Jones before 20 books uh, I was wandering in the wilderness pretty much and I didn't know what to change and there is a certain amount of business to this where if, if I could have paid more attention maybe I'd still be in thrillers but I'm kind of glad I'm not so if you can pay attention to the, or the covers, do they fit the genre? And are they, um, do they, uh, the only point of a blurb and a title and a cover is to get somebody excited about reading it. And so I had to learn not to, to tell the synopsis in the blurb, as you probably heard in the um, convention in London, don't tell the synopsis. It's like describing how a Cheeto is made instead of getting you excited about why you want to buy it. Yeah, that's a really good way of pussing it. Yeah, <laughs> um, so it's, it's well, isn't it? They say sell the, the sizzle, not the sausage, or whatever, isn't it? The, yes, the, yes. <laughs> that's the right. phrase. <laughs> so, uh, so you have to first figure out if your books aren't doing what you hoped. You have to first figure out is it the story? If you're getting really good reviews, not one stars, you know, when people find it, then maybe you do have a good story. So then you have to look and say, are these blurbs, um, are they really short and? Um, exciting and do they and are they accurate and if that's the case and you go you move to the cover and is the cover does it fit the genre am I confusing people like Michael has mentioned um, I think his Bethany Ann series could fall into two different genres and so he picked one sci-fi and so are you marketing to the right genre so that nobody's confused and um and then does the title convey something that fits with the genre? So that's where you, like, if your books aren't doing what you hoped, I've watched more, so many people say, I made hardly anything off this series and I changed these elements and look at me now. So what, Yeah, one of, one of the things I like about 20 books is um, it's iterative. And, and you know, this is something that came over very strongly at 20 Books London, is that if something doesn't work, we don't sit there all blaming each other or blaming right. ourselves. We, we switch, we change, we try something different. Right. right. And uh, it can be from, um, like, it can be as ridiculous as doing a 40-hour audible, which <laughs> I'm actually really looking forward to to see if this sucker works. Can you imagine a 40-hour audible? Enjoy. It, I mean, it's like binging on Audible. But then another thing that um, Michael talks about a lot is, is whale readers as well. And right. I know that the whole concept is built around this idea of, of whale readers. Can you just explain what that is and what, you know, what whale readers are for people who haven't heard of that term? 
A whale reader is somebody who reads very quickly and quite a bit. And so their consumption is continual and they like uh, ongoing stories. Uh, So they also will generally wait until they see there's at least three or four in a series before they'll jump in because they don't like um, having a story they do enjoy ending too quickly. I mean, we're um, book seven in the Lyric Chronicles came out March 1st. And um, I have a lot of whale readers saying, where's the next one? It, see, you know, there were only seven. I'm thinking, yeah, there were seven. And uh, they're excited. And so if you're targeting whale readers, the, then these are things to keep in mind. You might want to do a rapid release where you put out three or four books in 30 days um, because that then uh, Amazon helps you out by promoting your Amazon promotes things under 30 days. So it's kind of a way of signaling to all the whale readers, Hey, there's three books here or four books here. Um, Give it a try. Now you don't just co-write with Michael. You've got correct co-writers, other co-writers as well. Several. How on earth do you even get your head around this Martha? I, I mean, it's, I'm just looking at all the, you know, the names here, the, the, the titles, the series. How do you Some great series too. Yeah. So they all intertwine because it's all Orisarin. So everything does kind of fit to flow together. And um, I really do like urban fantasy. And these are really good writers. The Casey Chronicles um, with the winged, uh, some of the, magical people have wing have uh, like uh, bird wings and some have bat wings which i think is so clever that when they come to earth the wings kind of disappear for now because there's not enough magic left on earth or uh the fairhaven chronicles she found a way um sarah boyce found a way to write a series that's technically still on earth but it's underground and um uh Flint Maxwell, um, he wrote the Midwest Chronicles. And so he, uh, he also writes zombie books. And so I knew he'd be attracted to the world in between, which is kind of zombie-like. It's, it's Clearly, I'm having fun. So that's partially why I'm able to keep track is because of how much fun I'm having. But also, I gave up cleaning the house. I pay someone to do it now. And I gave up <laughs> mowing the lawn. I pay someone to do it now. And I keep moving. And when something needs to be done, I just do it. I don't put it off to make sure it gets done. And then um, at some point um, we work on beats together, but I also, these are seasoned um, writers who um, you can also help uh, get them to a point where they can do this themselves and they take it off and they run with it and they're really good. And so really what we're trying to make sure of too, is that all the pieces fit together still so that somebody doesn't say, Hey, I thought it was supposed to be like this in order Saren. And it's fun. In those collaborations, then, are you the, for, for want of a better phrase, the, the senior partner in that relationship? So does it cascade down from you in the way that with Michael it cascades yes. down to you? Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly right. And that's why you'll see their names at the tops of the books. And there's also, just so I don't leave anybody out, there's also Sarah Nofke, the Soulstone Mage series. Um, and it's more fantasy and a lot of fun. And um, I think she has vampires in hers as well and mermaids. How how important is it for you to have a personal relationship with the people that you're co-writing with? Do you need to, or is it really just a business proposition effectively between well, writers? I do. I don't know how others do it, but we're always looking for the person who's all, who doesn't need to be right. That's, I mean, besides being able to write and understanding the genre, we're looking for people who can work well in cooperation. 
And because that's really what all of us do extremely well together is we are your biggest supporter and we'll be your biggest cheerleader. And if you can kind of put your ego down and work with us too, uh, it's going to be a great time. But we, uh, we just really can't work with somebody who's going to tell us, look, this is the way I have to do it. I mean, to a degree, we consider each series this, um, like uh, Abby Lynn Knorr, um, the Casey Chronicles is her business, her little franchise. But at the same time, she's fitting into Orisarin, and we're going to help her any way we can with the storyline and um, polishing it and with the marketing. So it has to be a relationship where um, we trust each other and we truly believe that we each have our own, each other's best interests at heart. So if an idea comes up, we'll just go. And it, um, it's one of the most fun times I think I've ever had. Brilliant. Well, one of the things I was very interested to see on your website is that you have a lot of swag and also you're beginning to get into, I know Michael had this wonderful picture uh, commissioned, you're getting into sort of artwork as well around the books. Just just talk me through that, if you would, because I think a lot of authors would, would fear getting a load of stuff done and not being able to sell it, but you really have created a, you, you referred to it a moment or two ago, it's a franchise. It really does feel like a franchise to me. Right. So uh, for the Orsaren side, we uh, found these two artists, J.P. Balmet, who's done the drawings for the uh, troll and for a willin, which is a giant rat that hides, uh, that they're thieves and they hide jewelry in the folds of their skin. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's not Michael's. I'll be honest. And uh, then Andreas Roca, who's a, a wonderful artist who also does the drawings for Lego boxes. And he did original artwork for us of key things like the battle scene that kind of starts the series. And um, you can see that on the website. So, well, it, you know, in the very first book in the back, there's a, Michael wrote this thing that says the troll owns us. And because we caught on early that the troll was going to run away with things to some degree. People love the story, but they love that troll. So we started creating mugs. Um, for with the troll on it and mostly because we thought it was funny we have one that says got troll and then people just wanted to know how they could get one so then we set it up so that they could go and buy them and we give them away on release day and people love that troll and uh i know we have other things that we we are chatting with people about um animation we've been trying to figure out a way to do animation with the troll for a little while now and uh, we hope still that we can do it. We're talking to somebody else about it, working out the details. And I know Michael on the Cursarian side, which is a totally different universe, not connected to Orsaren. I think they're going to have original music soundtrack that you can listen to while reading. Um, so the thing about Michael is that I really enjoy among, there's many things about him I really enjoy, but he is open to a good idea. He does not need a committee. He does not uh, need to know what's the likelihood it will work. If he likes it, he's going to try it. And so there's a bunch that never really stick to the wall, but when one does, man, does it stick. So uh, I was going to say the other thing I really, the thing that made me willing to start a universe with him was I saw how kind he is consistently to authors. And I mean, if somebody uh, wants to suddenly quit in the middle and uh, give up, or if somebody's having a rough time, um, Michael's just 
kind to them. He do, he's not thinking about himself. He's not doing the what about me. I've never seen him do that. And I was really, I really was impressed by that. And that is still who he is. And so it makes for, it, you know, you know how they always say things trickle down from the top. Mm-hmm. So there's a camaraderie um, among all the authors for LMBPN, which is the name of the publishing house he owns um, and contains the different universes within. There's a camaraderie that I, you know, I've been writing for 30 years and I've never seen it to this level where people really are pulling for each other and are really happy for uh, everybody else's success and not just their own. It's interesting that you say that too, because I mean, I would rate the Facebook group as the best group I've been. I was in one before uh, that was called Kindling. Uh, and then um, I, that video, I think, I can't remember, you know what it's like online. You, I can't remember where I sure. found things, but I saw that video of Michael um, speaking, which is the one that you were at coincidentally. Right. And uh, I thought, oh, well, this is making a lot of sense to me. And then I checked out the Facebook group and it is the best group as far as I'm concerned. And also on this podcast, I was saying to everybody who listened to this podcast, 20 Books London is going to be the best independent author event in the UK. Just make sure you get there because there won't be anything better than this. And um, and I truly believe that having been there, there won't be anything better than that. He's really started quite a phenomenon uh, with 20 Books. Totally agree. And, um, and Craig Martell, who organized both the Vegas and London 20 Book Conventions, what a fantastic job he did of every detail uh, – and these were his very first conventions that he had ever planned. And those things worked like clocks, like machines. And I mean, not only the speakers, but the food and the rooms, everything was amazing. And I see that he's thinking of coming back to the UK next year to Edinburgh. Is that something that you'll be popping along for, do you think? Probably. I, I look at, looked at that one. They're going to be playing golf and bowling, and I don't play golf, but I know I'll get sucked in somehow. <laughs> Edinburgh's a lovely city. Uh, and um, I'm part Scottish, so I probably should go. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. The heritage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can. And, um, the, and also, by the way, Derek, Mer- I, I've t- I personally have taken things from the London convention and I'm using them like Derek Murphy and his talk on uh, newsletters and making 12 auto replies and how to do them and giveaways. I've put all of that. I just started doing all of that. And so I'm doing giveaways uh, like next week. There'll be a, a giveaway of every first book in the Oroseran series plus a troll mug. So if you go to the Facebook groups, you'll mine or or Sarah you'll see it and so I got a lot out of the other speakers a lot out of listening to them yeah you can't you can't be a bit of networking can you I, I I I've never been to a better uh indie author event it was uh absolutely stunning and but I think um all the values that you were talking about that come from the top I think that's a sign that they trickle right down you know even to people who aren't actually uh, writing in that universe they're just r- doing their own thing it's still it still trickles down i know craig also throws people out the facebook group he does. <laughs> mercilessly he does uh, yeah no, but that's good you've got to haven't you it's like being about absolutely you you set the you set the tone by who you let in and who you let out i think who you throw out absolutely and also another really uh, key thing is when he did the vegas conference all of us who spoke paid our own way paid for a ticket to the convention just like everybody else and volunteered our services Uh, my son volunteered his services and was the one who did the facebook live for the whole thing he sat through every 
talk and he's not a writer. And it's because everybody wanted to do this for Craig and Michael. And so that speaks a lot to their character that Chris Fox and, um, oh, I'm not going to think of anybody else's name, but um, <laughs> who showed up, <laughs> me, Honoré Quarter. I thought Ryan another Cullen. Right, yeah, thank you. Uh, everyone who showed up to speak uh, said yes because for Craig and for Michael, and that speaks a lot to their character. That people said, "Sure, yeah," and that's that, and they got that from the twenty books um, to fifty k Facebook group. They got that attitude there. So when you talk about trickling down, um, you had people who are at the top of their game um, speaking there, and also people like Shane Silvers who didn't speak there came and were sitting in the audience, and he is doing phenomenally and wanted to be there to learn more. So it, yeah, it, and uh, nobody was trying to make a profit. Um, like, you know, 20 bucks London, Craig gave back any overage to the people who attended. Who does that? Was, that? that was just, I've never been anywhere where somebody gave you a refund. Because yes. Under budget. It's phenomenal. And he, and he told everybody, he was very transparent. Here's what we, how much we had. Here's what we spent it on. Yeah, it's just amazing. And so well run. And there was even swag. Do you know what? Um, I'm actually, as, as you're talking, I'm writing little scribbles. I'm writing it with my 20 books London pen. There which, you go. Which I dearly love. I love the weight of it. And I wish I'd got more when I was there because they're, they're lovely. They're such lovely. My favorite pen now. In your in your twenty books to fifty k notebook, <laughs> yeah, in my twenty, yeah, it's just here on the desk right next to me. <laughs> yes, so we like the swag. You know, again, I haven't seen that done, but they're lovely little touches and, and uh, always going above and beyond. Um, I felt so. Edinburgh is going to be really useful. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I think is it, it looks like it's happening now, does it? Because I know there was some. Oh yeah, it, yeah. I mean, when he by the time he posts something, he says maybe, but he's really trying to make it happen. And and for people who are um, who are doing well, who really are kind of starting to become at the top of their game, he's doing one in Bali, and there won't be as many presentations, and it's going to be more about just mingling. It's a little more expensive, but you can write the whole thing off. And that's going to be January, I think. There's lots going on. And as I say, to me, as far as I'm concerned, it's the community that you've got to be in as an indie author at the moment. Uh, I think as an author. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's not just indie authors, is it? But uh, right. every author. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that. Um, you, you're ha- having a phenomenal time at the moment, Martha. I'm just wondering, um, you know, in terms of your personal planning, uh, rather than doing just more of the same, where, where are you headed for it? Do you have a, a sort of goal with all of this? Yes, to keep growing as much as I can inside LMBPN. Um, I come from an, a trad background where you, all, you got very little for a lot of effort. So to to get so much back office, Steve, um, Stephen Campbell does a lot of back office things. Uh, Jamie is back there. There's so many people behind LMBPN that nobody ever sees who are supporting the authors. And so uh, Michael is doing a series in, or Sarah, the unbelievable Mr. Brownstone that starts in April. And I have a second series coming out connected to, um, all of this called the school of necessary magic. So I'm very happy where I am and I don't feel the need to run out there and say, Hey, it was just me. Just so you know, uh, I like working in cooperation with others. I get more joy out of that. And I like being able to chit chat with others at times and, 
make this a group thing. And when, when I succeed, they succeed. When they succeed, I succeed. I love that. And um, Meg Cowley has a series that will be starting or Saren. David Barons, who I know from Thriller side, is going to be uh, coming over to the dark side of urban fantasy. And he has a series that will be starting in Orisaren soon. So I'm super happy where I am, and all I'm planning to do is more of it. And the, the Lyra Chronicles um, are going to keep growing and evolving. So it will be the same series, but, you know, someone paid a very nice compliment on the last book saying, I normally don't like long series, but I really love this one because it keeps changing. And I, I'm going to keep doing that for as long as I can until people say, I, you know, I think you're done here. Um, but until that day, I'm just having such a good time with everybody. I'm going to keep going. That was best-selling author Martha Carr speaking to me for the Self-Publishing Journeys podcast. Now, there was a very difficult episode in Martha's life and she explained it extremely eloquently and passionately at the 20 Books to London event and rather than ask Martha to relate those events to us again what I wanted to do was to share the link with her 20 Books to London presentation and recommend that to you very highly if you ever thought that you had it bad as an author if you thought things were tough for you listen to Martha's quite astonishing story that she told at 20 Books London. Now you are going to have to join the 20 Books to 50k Facebook group to access the video but if you go to the resources page for Martha's interview which is Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 108 then you'll see the link in the show notes there. Join the group when you click on the link it will automatically take you to Martha's presentation and I've given you the timings on that page if you want to you can scroll ahead and see what she said at that particular event it's a very very powerful video I didn't want to make her go through it again um, on the podcast interview because I think you'll agree that when you see that at the 20 books to London event I think you'll agree that really she said it all So I do recommend that you check that out. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Self-Publishing Journeys. We'll have another episode for you next week. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.